Dissonance Media and the Other Stories presents Step into the abyss of After the Gloaming, a gothic fiction podcast that delves into the depths of human emotion, unyielding love, revenge, internal struggles, and restless souls await you in nine haunting episodes where dread, fear, and rare glimpses of eerie happiness linger. Dare to listen on your favourite podcatcher? After the gloaming beckons, search now, but beware, innocence will be left behind. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. These aren't the stories your mother told you. No, these are the other stories. <laughs> Hello listeners, welcome to Christmas. My name is Luke and I'll be your Luke uh, for not just now but forever. After all, a Luke is for life and not just Christmas. Oh no, wait, that's dogs. I hope you're having a very festive time gathered around the family hearth or Christmas tree or whatever happens to be on fire. Uh, so yeah, first of all, a very Merry Christmas from myself and everyone in the Hawk and Cleaver Story Studio. Thanks for listening every single week. Uh, you really do keep us going and we're looking forward to an even better and even bigger year next year Um, due to inflation every year gets bigger and better (sighs) yeah it was only this time last year that I was having a last stand uh, fight against Santa Claus and lost and then this year's just flown by really hasn't it due to due to various reasons I imagine um I'm really excited about today's episode. A few months ago, I saw one of my favourite filmmakers post a reading on their Facebook page, and I loved it. Uh, So I reached out to them and asked if they fancied doing something for our listeners as a Christmas treat. Um, That filmmaker was the one and only Richard Stanley. Uh, There really isn't many people out there like Richard Stanley. He is a very singular vision um, in the world. He recently made the amazing Lovecraft adaptation The Colour Out of Space starring Nicolas Cage 
Um, if you've not seen that film, then I very much recommend it. Not only is it a great adaptation of the source material, it's also got a lot of bite to it, um, which I very much appreciate in my in my horror movies. I'd also very much recommend checking out Hardware, Richard's first film. It's a post-apocalyptic story about a killer robot, but also be sure to check out the documentary Lost Soul, The Doomed Journey of Richard Stanley's Ireland and Dr. Moreau. Um, it's a great documentary. It follows Richard fighting against all the Hollywood ego and greed uh, when trying to make the 1996 feature adaptation of Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, yeah, so Richard has very kindly narrated a H.P. Lovecraft story for us today. Uh, the story is The Festival. Um, seems timely. Uh, when I asked about his love for Lovecraft, he said he just wants to pay something back to the work that accompanied him growing up which is very, very admirable. As such, um, on our Facebook group, admin Joshua Boucher ran a, a Krampus-themed poetry contest, the idea being that the winner uh, would get to have their poem read on the podcast, but also get a free Blu-ray of The Colour Out of Space. So we will be sending that out shortly. We've got a few entries, a few cracking entries, but the winner was Amanda Lang. Congratulations, Amanda. Um, so I'm going to read out your poem all through the house and then I will send you a blu-ray of the color out space um, and then we'll jump straight into Richard's uh, reading of the festival so all through the house by Amanda Lang in the dark before Christmas in a small troubled house a sound most unjolly stirs the little boy mouse he slinks to the chimney in his stocking then cries Please, Daddy, stop before Mummy dies. More rapid than demons, Daddy reddens and whirls, still gripping her collar as cold fury unfurls. Get back in your bed if you know what's good for you and keep your eyes closed or Santa will gore you. Mouse runs for his covers, hides there beneath. He curls up fetal, but his ears have no sheath. In the family room, ornaments crash and they clatter. The tree smashes down, Milk and cookies they shatter. Squeezing his eyes tight, Mouse prays and he prays. Please, Jesus, please, Santa, take Daddy away. Inside, Mummy wails, braving blow after blow. Outside, the wind shrieks through the fresh, fallen snow. Then what to his terrified awe does Mouse hear? Thunder and sleigh bells, a laugh arctic severe. Hooves strike the roof with such jingling violence all through the house there's a heartbeat of silence then high in the chimney clangs a bone chilling sound of chains and sharp metal a brute climbing down a blizzard of whispers disembodied dark elves blows through the hallways rattles the shelves mummy she gasps as their visitor rises and daddy discovers what his christmas surprises he roars and he curses as hooves cross the floor who the hell are then daddy yells no more Thrashing and gurgling, begging like the meek. Daddy sounds smaller. Poor mommy, she shrieks. A crack like a wishbone, rending snap heard from bed. Now our sweet trembling mouse has much less to dread. Slump and a bump, something limp hits the floor. Then their Christmas Eve visitor starts to explore. Jangling hooves find his doorway, a beast of an elf. And little mouse whimpers in spite of himself. Fay footsteps tromp closer, Mouse doesn't dare peep, 
afraid to be gored in the place where he sleeps. Icy hands beneath covers go straight to their work, removing his stockings with a tug and a jerk. As Mouse swallows his breath in his wondering heart, past blankets and eyelids a horned shadow departs. Quick receding like nightmares, no more jolly to shed, their guests crashes up chimney, Mouse tiptoes from bed. Out front, lumpy stockings hang near the hearth, and the lights they all shine with a glistening mirth. Mummy sits dazed, red coat warming her shoulders. She straightens and sobs. We're safe, Mouse. It's over. Chasing wet footprints, Mouse peers up past the spit, at bricks cracked and bloody where Daddy didn't quite fit. They meet at the window and peek past the sash, just as the sky opens up like a gash. From the slit spews a hurricane of serpents and ice to swallow all those who refuse to be nice. In his sleigh, the eight creatures with cold blazing eyes, their visitor whistles then starts to rise. Up past the housetops he laughs and he soars, with a sleigh full of daddies trailing twinkling gore, and the two they hook closer as he slashes from sight, awaiting a morning both silent and bright. That was All Through the House, uh, written by Amanda Lang. Uh, that was a great poem. Congratulations, Amanda. And next up, without further ado, here is The Festival, written by H.P. Lovecraft and narrated by Richard Stanley. I was far from home, and the spell of the eastern sea was upon me. In the twilight I heard it pounding on the rocks, and I knew it lay just over the hill, where the twisting willows writhed against the clearing sky and the first stars of evening. And because my fathers had called me to the old town beyond, I pushed on through the shallow newly fallen snow, along the road that soared lonely up to where Alderbaran twinkled among the trees on towards the very ancient town I had never seen, but often dreamed of. It was the Yuletide that men call Christmas, though they know in their hearts it is older than Bethlehem or Babylon, older than Memphis and humankind. It was the Yuletide, and I had come at last to the ancient sea town where my people had dwelt and kept festival in the elder time, when festival was forbidden. Where also they had commanded their sons to keep festival once every century, that the memory of primal secrets might not be forgotten. Mine were an old people, and were old even when this land was settled three hundred years before. And they were strange because they had come as dark, furtive folk, from opiate southern gardens of orchids, and spoken another tongue before they learnt the tongue of the blue-eyed fishes. And now they were scattered, and shared only the rituals of mysteries that none living could understand. I was the only one who came back that night to the old fishing town as legend bade, for only the poor and the lonely remember. Then 
Beyond the hill's crest, I saw Kingsport, outspread frostily in the gloaming. Snowy Kingsport, with its ancient veins and steeples, ridge poles and chimney pots, wharves and small bridges, willow trees and graveyards. Endless labyrinths of steep, narrow, crooked streets and dizzy church-crowned central peak that time durst not touch. Ceaseless mazes of colonial houses piled and scattered at all angles and levels like a child's disordered blocks. Antiquity, hovering on grey wings over winter-whitened gables and gambrel roofs. Fanlights and small-paned windows one by one gleaming out in the cold dusk to join Orion and the archaic stars. And against the rotting wharves the sea pounded, the secretive, immemorial sea out of which the people had come in the elder time. Beside the road at its crest, a still higher summit rose, bleak and windswept, and I saw that it was a burying ground where black gravestones stuck ghoulishly from the snow, like the decayed fingernails of a gigantic corpse. The printless road was very lonely, and sometimes I thought I, I heard a, a distant, horrible creaking, as of a gibbet in the wind. They'd hanged four kinsmen of mine for witchcraft in 1692. I did not know just where. As the road wound down the seaward slope, I listened for the merry sounds of a village at evening, but did not hear them. Then I thought of the season, and felt that these old Puritan folk might well have Christmas customs strange to me, and full of silent hearthside prayer. So after that I did not listen for merriment, or look for wayfarers but kept on down past the hushed lighted farmhouses and shadowy stone walls, to where the signs of ancient shops and sea taverns creaked in the salt breeze, and the grotesque knockers of pillared doorways glistened along deserted, unpaved lanes in the light of little curtained windows. I'd seen maps of the town, and I knew where to find the home of my people. I was told I should be known and welcomed, for village legend lives long, so I hastened through back street to Circle Court, and across the fresh snow on the one full flagstone pavement left in the town, to where Green Lane leads off behind Market House. The old map still held good, and I had no trouble, though at Arkham they must have lied when they said the trolleys ran to this place, since I saw not a wire overhead. Snow would have hit the rails in any case. I was glad I'd chosen to walk for the white village seemed very beautiful from the hill. And now I was eager to knock at the door of my people. The seventh house on the left, in Green Lane, with an ancient peaked roof and jutting second story, all built before 1650. There were lights inside the house when I came upon it, and I saw from the diamond window panes that it must have been kept very close to its antique state. The upper part overhung the narrow, grass-grown street and nearly met the overhanging part of the house opposite, so I was almost in a tunnel, with the low stone doorstep wholly free from snow. There was no sidewalk, but many houses had high doors reached by double flights of steps of iron railings. It was an odd scene, 
And because I was strange to New England, I'd never known its like before. Though it pleased me, I would have relished it better if there'd been footprints in the snow, or people in the streets, and a few windows without drawn curtains. When I sounded the archaic iron knocker, I was half afraid. Some fear had been gathering in me, perhaps because of the strangeness of my heritage, and the bleakness of the evening, and the queerness of the silence in that aged town of curious customs. And when my knock was answered, I was fully afraid, because I had not heard any footsteps before the door creaked open. But I was not afraid long, for the gowned, slippered old man in the doorway had a bland face that reassured me, and though he made signs that he was dumb, he wrote a quaint and ancient welcome with the stylus and the wax tablet that he carried. He beckoned me into a low, candlelit room with massive exposed rafters and dark, stiff, sparse furniture of the 17th century. The past was vivid there, for not an attribute was missing. There was a cavernous fireplace and a spinning wheel at which a bent old woman in loose wrapper and deep poke bonnet sat back towards me, silently spinning despite the festive season. An indefinite dampness seemed to be upon the place, and I marveled that no fire should be blazing. The high-backed settle facing the row of curtained windows to the left seemed to be occupied, though I was not sure. I did not like everything about what I saw, and felt again the fear I'd had. This fear grew stronger from what I had before lessened it, for the more I looked at the old man's bland face, the more its very blandness terrified me. The eyes never moved, and the skin was too much like wax. Finally, I, I was sure it wasn't a face at all, but a fiendishly cutting mask. But the flabby hands, curiously gloved, wrote genially on the tablet, and told me I must wait a while before I could be led to the place of the festival. Pointing to a chair, table, and pile of books, the old man now left the room. And when I sat down to make myself comfortable, I saw the books were hoary and mouldy, and that they included old Morister's wild marvels of science, the terrible Sadducismus Triumphatus of Joseph Glanville, published in 1681, the shocking Demonolatreo of Remigius, printed in 1595 at Lyon, and, worst of all, the unmentionable Necronomicon of the mad Arab, Abdul al-Hazrat, in Alaus Wormius's forbidden Latin translation, a book which I had never seen, but which I'd heard monstrous things whispered. No one spoke to me, but I could hear the creaking of signs in the wind outside and the whir of the wheel as the bonneted old woman continued her silent spinning, spinning. I thought the room and the books and the people very morbid and disquieting. And because an old tradition of my father's had summoned me to strange feastings, I resolved to expect strange things. So I tried to read, and soon became tremblingly absorbed by something I found in that accursed Necronomicon. A thought and a legend too hideous for sanity or consciousness 
but I disliked it when I fancied I heard the closing of one of the windows at the settle-faced, as if it had been stealthily opened. It seemed to follow a, a whirring that was not the old woman's spinning wheel. This was not much, though for the old woman was spinning very hard, and the aged clock had been striking. After that I lost the feeling that there were persons on the settle, and was reading intently and shudderingly, when the old man came back booted and dressed in a loose antique costume, and sat down on that very bench, so that I could not see him. It was certainly nervous waiting, and the blasphemous book in my hands made it doubly so. When eleven struck, however, the old man stood up, glided to a massive carved chest in the corner, and got out two hooded cloaks, one of which he donned, and the other of which he draped around the old woman, who was ceasing her monotonous spinning. Then they both started for the outer door, the woman lamely creeping, and the old man, after picking up the very book I had been reading, beckoning me as he drew his hood over that unmoving face or mask. We went out into the moonless and tortuous network of that incredibly ancient town. Went out as the lights in the curtained windows disappeared one by one, and the dog star leered at the throng of the cowled, cloaked figures that poured silently from every doorway and formed monstrous processions up the street and that past the creaking signs and antediluvian gables, the thatched roofs and diamond-paned windows, threading precipitous lanes where decaying houses overlapped and crumbled together, gliding across open courts and churchyards where the bobbing lanterns made eldritch drunken constellations. Amid these hushed throngs, I followed my voiceless guides, jostled by elbows that seemed preternaturally soft, and pressed by chests and stomachs that seemed abnormally pulpy, but seeing never a face, hearing never a word. Up, up, up the eerie columns slithered, and I saw that all the travellers were converging as they flowed near a sort of focus of crazy alleys at the top of a high hill in the centre of the town, where perched a great white church. I'd seen it from the road's crest when I looked at Kingsport, in the new dusk, and it made me shiver, because Alderbaran had seemed to balance itself for a moment on the ghostly spire. There was an open space around the church, partly a churchyard with spectral shafts and partly a half-paved square, swept nearly bare of snow by the wind, and lined of unwholesomely archaic houses, having peaked roofs and overhanging gables. Death fires danced over the tombs, revealing gruesome vistas through queerly failing to cast any shadows. Past the churchyard, where there were no houses, I could see over the hill's summit and watch the glimmer of stars in the harbour, though the town was invisible in the dark. Only once in a while a lantern bobbed horribly through serpentine alleys on its way to overtake the throng that was now slipping speechlessly into the church. I waited till the crowd had oozed into the black doorway, until all the stragglers had followed. The old man was pulling at my sleeve, but I was determined to be the last. Then I finally went, the sinister man and the old spinning woman before me. Crossing the threshold into that swarming temple of unknown darkness, I turned once to look at the outside world as the churchyard phosphorescence cast a sickly glow over the hilltop pavement. 
and as I did so, I shuddered. For though the wind had not left much snow, a few patches did remain on the path near the door, and in that fleeting backward look it seemed to my troubled eyes that they bore no mark of passing feet, not even mine. The church was scarce lighted by all the lanterns that entered it, for most of the throng had almost vanished. They had streamed up the aisle between the high white pews to the trap door of the vaults, which yawned loathsomely open just before the pulpit, and were now squirming noiselessly in. I followed dumbly down the foot-worn steps and into the dank, suffocating crypt. The tale of that sinuous line of night marches seemed very horrible. And as I saw them wriggling into a venerable tomb, they seemed more horrible still. Then I noticed the tomb's door had an aperture down which the throng was sliding, and in a moment we were all descending an ominous staircase of rough-hewn stone, a narrow spiral staircase, damp and peculiar odorous, that wound endlessly down to the bowels of the hill, past monotonous walls of dripping stone blocks and crumbling mortar, was a silent, shocking descent, and I observed after a horrible interval that the walls and the steps were changing in nature as if chiseled out of the, the solid rock. What mainly troubled me was that the myriad footfalls made no sound and set up no echoes. After more aeons of descent, I saw some side passages or burrows leading from unknown recesses of blackness to the shaft of nighted mystery. Soon they became excessively numerous, like impious catacombs of nameless menace, and their pungent odour of decay grew quite unbearable. I knew we must have passed down through the mountain and beneath the earth of Kingsport itself, and I shivered that a town should be so aged and maggoty with subterranean evil. Then I saw the lurid shimmering of pale light and heard the insidious lapping of sunless waters. Again I shivered, for I did not like the things that the night had brought and wished bitterly that no forefather had summoned me to this primal rite. As the steps of the passage grew broader, I heard another sound, the thin whining mockery of a feeble flute, and suddenly there spread out before me the boundless vista of an inner world. A vast fungus shore, litten by a belching column of sick greenish flame, and washed by a wide oily river that flowed from abysses frightful and unsuspected to join the blackest gulfs of immemorial ocean. Fainting and gasping, I looked at that unhallowed Erebus of titan toadstools, leprous fire and slimy water, and saw the cloaked throngs forming a semicircle around the blazing pillar. It was the Yule Rite, older than mankind and fated to survive him, the primal rite of the solstice and of spring's promise beyond the snows, the rite of fire and evergreen, the new green leaves, light and music, and in the Stygian grotto I saw them do the rite and adore the sickly pillar of flame, and throw into the water handfuls gouged out from the vegetation that glittered green in the chlorotic glare. I saw this, and I saw something, amorphously squatted far away from the light, piping noisomely on a flute. 
and as the thing piped, I thought I heard noxious muffled flutterings in the fettered darkness where I couldn't see. But what frightened me most was that flaming column, spouting volcanically from depths profound and inconceivable, casting no shadows as any healthy flame should, and coating the nitrous stone above with a nasty venomous verdigris. For in all that seething combustion no warmth lay, but only the clamminess of death and corruption. The man who had brought me now squirmed to a point directly beside the hideous flame and made stiff ceremonial motions to the semicircle he faced. At certain stages of the ritual, they did groveling obeisance, especially when he held above his head the abhorrent necronomicon he had taken with him, and I shared all those obeisances because I had been summoned to this festival by the writings of my forefathers. Then the old man made a signal to the half-seen flute player in the darkness, which player thereupon changed its feeble drone to a scarce louder drone in another key, precipitating as it did a horror unthinkable and unexpected. At this horror, I sank nearly to the lichened earth, transfixed with a dread not of this nor any world, but only of the spaces between the stars. Out of the unimaginable blackness, beyond the gangrenous glare of that cold flame, out of the Tartarian leagues through which that oily river rolled uncannily, unheard and unsuspected, there flopped rhythmically a horde of tame, trained, hybrid-winged things that no sound eye could ever wholly grasp or sound brain ever wholly remember. They were not altogether crows, nor moles, nor buzzards, nor ants, nor vampire bats, nor decomposed human beings, but something I cannot or must not recall. They, they, they flopped limply along, half of webbed feet and half of their membranous wings, and as they reached the throng of celebrants, the cowled figures seized and mounted them and rode off one by one along the reaches of that unlighted river into pits and galleries of panic where poisoned springs feed frightful and undiscoverable cataracts. The old spinning woman had gone with the throng, and the old man remained only because I had refused when he motioned me to seize an animal and ride like the rest. I saw when I staggered to my feet that the amorphous flute player had rolled out of sight, but that two of the beasts were patiently standing by. As I hung back, the old man produced his stylus and tablet and wrote that he was the true deputy of my father's who had founded the Yule worship in this ancient place, that it had been decreed that I should come back, and that the most secret mysteries were yet to be performed. He wrote this in a, a very ancient hand, and when I hesitated, he pulled from his loose robe a seal ring and a watch, both of my family arms, to prove that he was what he said. But it was a hideous proof, because I knew from old papers that that watch had been buried of my great-great-great-great-grandfather in 1698. Presently, the old man drew back his hood and pointed to the family resemblance in his face. 
but I only shuddered because I was sure that the face was merely a, a devilish waxen mask. The flopping animals were now scratching restlessly at the lichens, and I saw that the old man was nearly as restless himself. When one of the things began to waddle and edge away, he turned quickly to stop it, so that the suddenness of his motion dislodged the waxen mask from what should have been his head. And then because that nightmare's position barred me from the stone staircase down which we had come, I flung myself into the oily underground river that bubbled somewhere to the caves of the sea, flung myself into that putrescent juice of the earth's inner horrors before the madness of my screams could bring down upon me all the charnel legions those pest gulfs might conceal. At the hospital, they told me I'd been found half-frozen in Kingsport Harbour at dawn, clinging to a drifting spar that accidents had to save me. They told me I'd taken the wrong fork of the hill road the night before, that I must have fallen over the cliffs at, at Orange Point, a thing they deduced from the prints they found in the snow. There was nothing I could say. Because everything was wrong. Everything was wrong, with the broad window showing a sea of roofs in which only about one in five was ancient, and the sound of trolleys and motors in the streets below. They insisted this was Kingsport, and I couldn't deny it when I became delirious at hearing that the hospital stood near the old churchyard on Central Hill. They sent me to St. Mary's in Arkham instead, where I could have better care. I liked it there, for the doctors were broad-minded, and they even lent me their influence in obtaining the carefully sheltered copy of Alhazred's objectionable Necronomicon from the library at Miskatonic University. They said something about a psychosis, and they agreed I'd better get any harassing obsessions off my mind. So I read again that hideous chapter. And I shuddered doubly, because it was indeed not new to me. I had seen it before. Let footprints tell what they might. And where it was I'd seen it is best forgotten. There was no one in waking hours who could remind me of it. But my dreams are filled with terror because of phrases I dare not quote. I dare quote only one paragraph. Put into such English as I can make from the awkward low Latin. The nethermost caverns, wrote the mad Arab. The nethermost caverns are not for the fathoming of eyes that see, for their marvels are strange and terrific. Curse the ground where dead thoughts live new and oddly bodied, and evil the mind that is held by no head. Wisely did Ibn Sakabao say that happy is the tomb where no wizard hath lain, and happy the town at night whose wizards are all ashes. For it is of old rumour that the soul of the devil bought hastes not from his charnel clay, but fats and instructs the very worm that gnaws, till out of corruption horrid life springs, and the dull scavengers of earth wax crafty to vex it and swell monstrous to plague it. Great holes secretly are dug where earth's pores ought to suffice.
and things have learned to walk that ought to crawl. Thanks very much for listening to today's episode of the podcast and thanks again to everyone involved. One last time, a big Merry Christmas from everybody at the H&C studio. All Through the House was written by Amanda Lang and narrated by Luke Condor. Hey, that's me. Um, And the festival was written by H.P. Lovecraft and narrated by Richard Stanley. Thanks again, Richard, for, for offering to do this. It's very much appreciated. The episode was edited by Duncan Muggleton, with music by Duncan Muggleton and Tom Robson, and sound effects provided by freesound.org. The episode illustration was provided by Luke Spooner of Carry On House. Um, if you enjoyed today's episode, you can help support the show over at patreon.com forward slash hawk and cleaver. You can join our book club and movie club and chat about podcasts over at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash hawk and cleaver. T-shirts and mugs and posters are available at gumroad.com forward slash Hawk and Cleaver. Uh, the other story is a production of the Story Studio of Hawk and Cleaver and is brought to you with Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License. That means don't change it, don't sell it, but by all means share the hell out of it. So, Merry Christmas! Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to Quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.